But it would be a nice, easy access to some yummy, yummy mom poop if they have to. (laughs) Okay. You're not wrong. your favorite Grasslands PR team. This week, we're back with another reason why these overlooked and underappreciated ecosystems are objectively the best biome. I'm Nicole. And I'm Rachel. And it's windy outside today. So if you hear a lot of (laughs) rattling, uh, that's Kansas for (laughs) you. It's true. It's extremely windy. (laughs) We're trying our best. And uh, yeah, today we're doing something very different from normal uh, because we decided in honor of April Fools, we would play a game. (laughs) Yes. We are going to try to fool each other with some animal, plant, uh, ecosystem. I don't know what your facts are. (laughs) I think mine are all animals. Now I don't even know what my facts are. Oh gosh. Anyways, we are going to try to fool each other with some grassland facts and we're going to be playing two truths and a lie. And I cannot wait to stump you. Nicole, my history (laughs) of writing science Olympiad questions for high schoolers is coming out just in full force. (laughs) Oh gosh. (laughs) Now I'm nervous. Good. You should be. (laughs) For anyone not familiar, essentially, we'll just list off three, you know, facts. I'm making air quotes. And two of them will be truths. One will be a lie. And the other person has to guess which one the lie is. And then we'll, you know, elaborate a little bit. So it'll be fun. Yeah. And we (laughs) haven't told each other anything about what we researched, except we did ahead of time kind of carve out the globe into continents and said, okay, just to make sure that we don't cover anything that's the same, we're only allowed to do three continents each, and we're not allowed to stray from that, so. Yes. I can't <laughs> wait. It's going to be fun. I'm excited. Do you want to go first? Um, kind of. <laughs> okay, do it. Uh, oh, do we have any news or anything first? I mean, kind of. If you haven't seen it yet, We have updated our website a little bit. There's some new blog posts, all that fun stuff. And we also, right on the front page, have a lovely donation box. So if you love the things that we do, whether it's, you know, this fun April Fool's podcast, the podcast in general, or just our educational mission, throw us a couple bucks. It means a lot to us. It really, really does. We love doing this for you guys. Uh, it does not pay the bills. <laughs> so it does not. Any support is really valuable. Thanks, guys. Okay, shall I go first then? I'm so excited. Please do. Oh man, I'm nervous. And hang on, let me figure out which one I want to go first. Um, <laughs> ooh, okay. Oh, I'm gonna start out with something that I think is gonna be kind of fun. Uh, okay. <laughs> oh gosh, um, you're gonna hate me. So <laughs> I decided as i was looking at south america is it birds no 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 no. we're we're gonna play a little (laughs) game that i'm gonna call mirror mirror oh gosh and uh, all of these facts quote unquote (laughs) are going to be about animals in south american grasslands specifically the pampas so we're not talking Mm cejado this time we're talking the pampas in argentina and uruguay so Animals there that have 
foils or ecological counterparts that we might recognize from North America. Okay, okay. Okay, okay. Um, I don't know how detailed your lies are, but I will, or or truths, your facts, whatever. Um, but I will tell you that for this round, um, I'm not trying to, like, trick you with tiny technicalities of, like, well, it's mostly mm-hmm. true, but, like, this tiny itty bitty fact is wrong so it's like either mostly a lie or it's mostly true as far as i can tell okay 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 cool so first of all i want to talk about the pampas meadowlark oh oh uh this species uh kind of like northern sternella species is a denizen of grasslands across argentina and uruguay with a yellow breast and long-toed long-legged feet this familiar blackbird in the pampas can be distinguished from its foil in North America by unique facial markings and a more dainty profile. It's found breeding in most grassland types in spring and summer and flocks up in large numbers in winter where it more re- readily, I can read words, where it more readily occupies agricultural fields in the winter, just like meadowlarks eastern and western that occur in North American prairies. That is, okay. that is your first one. Okay. Seems legit. Seems legit. Yeah, thank you. Uh, next up, we have the pampas fox. I tried very hard to find all animals that had pampas blank in their name. Didn't quite work yeah. out, but it's I tried. Um, and I'm going to call the pampas fox the South American foil to the swift fox in North America. So, while not a true fox, this canid, the pampas fox like Swifties, is found primarily in grasslands, but can also thrive in deserts. They are mostly nocturnal and solitary, except in the breeding season, when they find a monogamous partner and raise kits in underground burrows. They are omnivores, but eat much more live prey than other foxes like the red fox. Okay. Sounds like a fox. Sure does. <laughs> yep. I mean, that's different from other foxes, though. Like, the red fox is very omnivorous, uh-huh. but I'm saying that the, the pampas fox eats, like, maybe, if you had to put a number on it, like, 75% of the diet animal matter. So it's it's okay. definitely more like a little Swifty, you know? Okay. 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 Um, and finally, uh, <laughs> you're going to hate me. Uh, like North America, some of the most important native herbivores in the pampas are grasshoppers. <laughs> and they're also a recurrent pest of the agricultural ecosystem. So, uh, here's some scientific names. Dicroplus oh, <laughs> is the South American ecological equivalent of North American Melanoplus. Now, I cannot find a common name for the South American version, but the North American genus that I'm talking about is stuff like the differential grasshopper and the two-striped grasshopper. Dicroplus, eating both grasses and forbs, are considered polyphagous. They're considered incredibly damaging to agriculture, especially when they have outbreaks, something that makes them very analogous to their North American counterparts. Uh, in fact, in 2008 to 2010, uh, what's its genus? Dicroplus maculopenis, not penis, which I originally <laughs> thought it was. Somebody typoed it in the original paper I read. <gasps> wow. <laughs> uh, 
had a massive population explosion with typical aggregation behaviors and mass dispersal flights in Buenos Aires, similar to its northern cousins, whose outbreaks have left marks on Great Plains history, too. So which of those is mostly true? Which of those is mostly false? I feel like you can ask me questions if you want, and I'll just be coy Um, about it. Oh my gosh. That's almost worse. (laughs) I mean... I don't know nothing about grasshoppers. Oh, I so know. So I can't speak on the last one. So I'm just going to assume that that one's true. Um, <laughs> okay. I have no idea. <laughs> See, yours are way more in-depth than mine are. Mine just, are like, all like this. Spoiler alert. <laughs> mine are one sentence. And oh, then I no. just elaborate later. Because that's how you play two truths and a lie. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I just wanted to be more elaborate about, like, why they were exactly the same as the North American ones, you know? Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I guess if you could boil down everything, I would say that the Dicroplus <laughs> genus of grasshoppers is the South American equivalent to uh, differential grasshoppers. I would say the okay. Pampas fox is the ecological equivalent to the swift fox, and uh-huh. the Pampas meadowlark is the ecological equivalent to the eastern and western meadowlark. Okay. I'm going to say that the fox... Oh, my house just rumbled. Um, let me try again. <laughs> I heard. I'm gonna say that the fox one is a lie. Okay, what makes you say that? Mm, I have a fifty-fifty shot, and because <laughs> you don't think it's the grasshoppers. Because <laughs> I don't think it's the grasshoppers. Okay, I okay. think that was too specific, and I don't think you would lie to me about grasshoppers because you love grasshoppers and you're obsessed with them. I'm not um, obsessed. Maybe a little, but. I mean, you just were talking about your grandhoppers out on your porch right before we started recording. Yeah, the wind blew their terrarium over. <laughs> oh. Anyway, okay, okay. I track. Okay. Um, and I'm just going to assume that maybe those foxes have a slightly different lifestyle. So maybe, you know, maybe they're a little bit more social or something like that. Mm, mm, okay. Well, Nicole, drum roll, please. You're wrong. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Uh, It's actually the Pampas Meadowlark that's completely wrong. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So uh, they are pretty different from North American Meadowlarks. First of all, they don't look anything like Meadowlarks. They are black and they have a bright red (laughs) breast. Oh, okay. Well, that'll do it. (laughs) And they are very vulnerable and really declining and have a very limited range. So they're pretty rare, actually, in uh, Argentina Yeah, and the reason why is because they don't really adapt readily to agriculture like Mm -hmm. northern, the eastern and western meadowlark do. So they actively avoid planted areas, and they require really tall, like, specific vegetation cover. So they're not like, you know, a ubiquitous grassland animal like the north, sorry, the meadowlarks we're familiar with. Instead, Mm -hmm. they, they're like so specific that they'll occupy land that's been abandoned for at least five years, maybe. <laughs> uh, Dang. Okay. And that's like the kind of cover and developed ecosystem they need. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. That was a good one. That was a good round. Thank you. I can't wait for your <laughs> much less complicated questions. <laughs> maybe I It'll should be a nice adjust mine. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. Please don't adjust. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> Do you want me to do one and then we can flip flop? Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. Okay. So 
uh, we're done with South America. Never talking about it again. No. Let's go over to not, Europe. Okay, fine. <laughs> Europe. Europe. Okay, so, like, I know that you've been doing a lot of Europe, European uh, research. So I wanted to do something that I figured that you would have no idea about. Oh, good. Okay. And we're just, we're just going to talk about bugs. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. So European bugs. Um, I, I love bugs. I am the bug lady. But I don't know that much about European bugs. So this was kind of fun. I flip-flopped on which ones I wanted to do like a million times. And I decided on these three. Are you ready? Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> the minotaur beetle, with large horns like a bull, will excavate burrows nearly two meters long with various branching tunnels in order to raise their young in. Did you say minotaur beetle? <laughs> minotaur beetle. Okay, beautiful. Okay. Can you describe it to me? No. Okay, fine. I said I okay. said with large horns like a bull. Okay, okay. It's a okay. beetle. Okay. And it's got horns. Thank it's you. a minotaur okay, beetle. Cool. It's Thanks. black. It's smallish. Not like um like really small, but like smallish. <laughs> Is that good enough? Is that, is that a good description? That was perfect. Okay, keep going. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> the large blue butterfly, that's its actual common name spends part of its life as a caterpillar underground. <laughs> okay. Number three, the Euro European ladybirds, a.k.a. ladybugs, but I love that they're called ladybirds in Europe, don't eat aphids, instead preferring to eat plant sap and honeydew. Oh. What you think? Oh, no. There's difficulty in the simplicity, you know? It's I like know. I know. <laughs> entomologists would definitely name a butterfly that. Uh-huh. And plenty of butterflies emerge from underground. Minotaur Minotaur beetle sounds fake, which is why it has to be real. <laughs> and I don't know, the ladybird one sounds plausible. Yeah. But they're <laughs> They shouldn't be. I'm going to go with the ladybird one. Is fake? Yes. <laughs> Why? Because I think that they're predatory and I don't think. I think that they're predatory. Okay. Okay. That's fair. Okay. And I almost. So this one. Oh, no. Is a little tricky. You are correct because of the way that I phrased the sentence so oh you are being like technical oh no <laughs> just just in this one just in this one so i said european ladybirds because there's like a bunch of different species of, of ladybirds in europe um however the 22 spot ladybird is not uh, predatory <laughs> wow <laughs> what is my brain doing the 22-spot ladybird is not predatory. It really does just eat, like, honeydew and plant sap. Okay. So, super cool. But not all of them. Um, I think it's just, like, one or two species of ladybirds that do this. And I don't know of any in America that don't, like, eat aphids yeah. and other insects. Um, so that was kind of interesting. But, yeah, you are correct. Not all European ladybirds eat the honeydew 
Okay, that these, was these... not fair. <laughs> I mean, you were still right, so. Okay, okay. I just, I like, mean... I didn't picture it in my mind's eye with uncapitalized uh-huh. letters, you know what I mean? <laughs> Lady Bird's. Okay, okay, okay. Oh, but I still I'm won. I'm sorry that I tricked you. But yeah, you still won. Rachel so, won, Nicole, okay. zero. Okay, you better calm down. Let me let me talk about my other two real quick, though. Okay, okay. Okay, so the Minotaur beetle is a real beetle. These are all... I picked all real animals. It's just whether or not I'd made up facts about them or not. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> the Minotaur beetle is a real thing. They're super cool looking. Um, and they have super large horns, kind of like a bull. So they have two on the outside, but then they also have a little tiny one coming out like the middle of their head. Um, and they build these huge labyrinths underground that are two meters long. And so like six feet. And they do have a ton of little tunnels. And at the end of each one of these little branching tunnels, they will actually lay just one egg, give it a little poop ball to eat when the baby hatches, and then barricade that entrance so each little tunnel is for one little baby and they're such good parents and i just love them they're so good that was really beautiful (laughs) thank you i don't know yeah and then the parents die immediately so there's no like you know extended parental involvement they just give them what they need they die and then the babies hatch in the fall do the same thing those babies will uh, you know, pupate over the winter, hatch in the spring, and start it all over again. So, really cool life cycle. I love them. Fascinating. Yeah. And then the large blue butterfly, and I, I wasn't, I feel like not that many people know about this, and you kind of, I thought it was interesting that you read it in a different way that I meant. <laughs> so, Yes, a lot of butterflies and moths in particular will pupate underground, but this guy actually spends part of its life as a caterpillar. So like as a larva underground. Yeah, it's not just pupating underground, but it's like living underground. Yeah. So these guys, they will feed on, you know, various wildflowers and things like that. And then once they get big enough, they will actually go down into an ant colony and live with the ants. And the ants will milk them for honeydew and take care of the caterpillar. And do you want to guess what that caterpillar eats while he's down there? Because he's not done growing. Oh, no. Uh, Does it eat roots? Nope. Okay. That's cute, though. He eats the ants that are taking care of him. Oh, that's fantastic. And and their babies. Yes. Um, So, (laughs) yeah. But he does it, you know, very slyly. They don't catch him. Um, hopefully. I'm sure that sometimes they do, and then the caterpillar ends up dead. But hopefully, he does not catch, he's not caught, and he just hangs out down there, getting pampered, eating their babies, then he pupates, and they will actually carry him out of the tunnel, apparently. This seems slightly made up. But they will carry him out of the tunnel, and like, guard the butterfly as it's emerging from its uh, chrysalis and its wings are drying off and then it just flies away to make new babies and you know start the process over fantastic that's really yeah. cool yeah super cool oh <laughs> excellent i love it thanks Thank nicole <laughs> what a fun game this is like the best idea we've ever had 
<laughs> I like it a lot. I'm very excited. Yeah. That was a bold statement. Maybe it's not the best idea we've ever had, but at the moment, I'm really jazzed about it, okay? <laughs> yes, yes. I'm having a great time. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, you're going to continue having a great time. Um, <laughs> hang on. I have one, two, three, four, five, six facts oh. listed on this one, so I need to delete the ones or like change the color of the ones I'm not actually using. Uh, <laughs> oh, gosh. I, there were just too many good things in this category. Um, I was taking yeah. so many notes. <laughs> My next one I have four, but then I narrowed it down to only three, so. Okay. I love it. That's so good. <laughs> okay, Nicole. Are you ready for North American I'm so ready. Questions? Okay. Okay. We're, I'm <laughs> knocking out the Americas first uh, because my Africa round is all bugs, so... <laughs> Oh, oh my we're gonna gosh. just be a little different. I know. Aren't you so excited, dude? I'm so I, surprised. Are you? Because uh, yeah, that's actually valid. I I was originally gonna do smammals, but then I yeah. realized that a lot of the things I was reading and excited about were things like multi mammates, which you mm. literally breed. So there was no way I was gonna surprise <laughs> you with information anyway. Uh huh. That's fair. <laughs> okay. Uh, I almost did birds, and I was like, I can't do birds. Rachel will just magically know it, so. <laughs> I love how that's probably not even true, but that you thought it anyway, so. Yes. Aww. All right, well, for North America, obviously we're both very familiar with the prairies in North America, so I wanted to find something that I thought would be new and interesting. So the category for our North American round is... North American carnivorous prairie plants. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. Uh, yeah, so we're going to start um, with butterworts. So butterworts are a cute little uh, carnivorous plant. I can describe them. These are all real plants. I will just go ahead and tell you that. These are all real things that actually exist. So um, butterworts are like a little rosette of leaves that fold up when they catch bugs. They're really cute. Oh. And uh, butterworts are actually sometimes found in prairies. For example, Kissimmee Prairie Preserve which has been preserved uh, for the Florida grasshopper sparrow, which we just talked oh. about, that very same prairie, is home to several butterwort species. I'm, I'm shortening my, my descriptions for you. Oh, you don't have to. No, no, no. That's all you need to know. <laughs> okay, okay. Okay. So that it exists and it's in this prairie? Yes. Okay, fine. That's your, that... your truth or your lie? <laughs> that seems very cheaty why is it magically because i just have to magically know if this plant is in this specific place okay well yes <laughs> you do okay fine. okay you'll you'll it'll hopefully you'll like fig figure out the theme or whatever i don't know it'll be fine okay. you'll, you'll figure okay. it out okay so butterworts are like the small butterwort the yellow flowered butterwort all these little cute babies grow mm -hmm. in similar areas to ground orchids and hang out with Florida grasshopper sparrows in places like Kissimmee Prairie Preserve. Yay! Okay. Okay, next. <laughs> <laughs> next up, we have Saracenia purpurea, a.k.a. the purple pitcher plant. It's native to large parts of the Midwest and grows frequently in Minnesota prairies. For example, Warner Nature Center, 
has them growing along their boardwalks. Look at the bigger picture here, not whether it exists in these specific places, okay? Okay. I'm not trying to trick you with little technicalities like, oh, you didn't know where Warner Nature Center was in Washington County. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's the purple pitcher plant grows in these Minnesota prairies. Okay. Okay. Beautiful. All right. <laughs> and finally, we have a little sundew. Do you know what sundews are? Uh-huh. I assumed you knew what, like, pitcher plants were. If any of our audience doesn't know what a sundew is, it's that little carnivorous plant that has, like, little drops of dewy, squishy substances hanging off their leaves, and then they catch flies in them and curl up. Yes. Anyway, um, uh, the smallest sundew in the United States can be found in prairies and savannas (laughs) in Arkansas. Uh, (laughs) It hangs out in similar habitats to birds like henslows, sparrows, in places like Warren Prairie Natural Area in Arkansas. You have to look carefully for them, though, uh, because they're very tiny little sundews hanging out in the prairies. Did I say that already? They live in the prairies. <laughs> wow. Yes. Okay. Um, so those very well-articulated truths are now yours to dissect. Okay. Um... I hate to say that I believe any of them, but <laughs> I mean, I was right last time, I guess, in what the one that I believed. Um, I believe Sundew, again, okay. the last one. I don't know why. It just feels genuine. Um, okay. <laughs> and I'm going to call Pitcher Plant a lie. Okay. Why? Uh, the Pitcher Plants that I know of are very much water loving but who knows prairies are weird like that they like to just throw random stuff at you (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh yes you are correct they do grow in minnesota but um they grow in bogs in minnesota they are found at warner nature center though uh growing along their boardwalks just the boardwalks that go over bogs and not the prairie portions of (laughs) the nature center (laughs) i mean Usually you don't put boardwalks over dry grass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's the one. I'm still tickled that pitcher plants and Venus flytraps and all these things that to us seem very mm-hmm. exotic are actually North American natives. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I know the East Coast has a bunch. So it's nice to hear of one a little closer to home to Kansas. Yeah, and you know what? Um there's a lot of them that do live in prairies and savannas and other areas. There's apparently a whole subset of, like, wetland habitats that are more, like, uh, marshy, I guess. Yeah. What's what's this one that I found? Um, wet pine savannas are oh. a habitat type in Mississippi. And I found the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service website for that a little bit confusing because the title of the article was Savage Prairie. But it's, oh. like... Technically, a savanna that's seasonally flooded and wet for most of the year, so it's more like a wetland, and I didn't feel comfortable calling that a prairie, even though it has, like, sundews, butterworts, and pitcher plants. But a lot of these places, like, they do get pretty wet, and um, maybe the little butterworts or the little uh, sundews that grow there 
will just die off in the really hot part of the summer, but by then they've already produced seeds and have seeds in the seed bank, so during the more wet parts of the year, they can grow and flourish. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's pretty cool. So like uh, in Florida, in the Kissimmee Prairie, they have butterworts, and they also have uh, pitcher plants and bladderworts, which, and butterworts? No, I had said that already. Oh, sundews. They have sundews, <laughs> bladderworts, and pitcher plants all growing in that prairie preserve in different, you know, wetness gradients. Um, <laughs> Gross. Yeah, right? <laughs> Thanks. Uh, yeah. And I am kind of in love with the little dwarf sundew, Drosera brevifolia. I didn't say its name, I don't think, originally, but it's the smallest sundew in the in the United States. And this little guy apparently has a weird, like, dependent relationship with a burrowing crayfish. Oh, that's fun. I, I know. love crayfish. I know you do. I really wanted to find a way to put that in, but I was like, well, that's going to obviously be true because I can't make stuff like that up. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, yeah. apparently there's like a whole um, article I found about how the burrowing crayfish creates these kind of small scale micro disturbances in the meadow habitats that create this niche space that the sundews are able to colonize, these tiny little sundews. Isn't that so cool? That is so cool. Yeah. I love that. Me too. Wow. So yeah. Um <laughs> Another thing to add to your list of reasons to love the prairie is all of the carnivorous plants. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There's also that headline went around last year, I think, about maybe it was two years ago. I don't know. doesn't matter. The switchgrass being carnivorous. Yeah. But it was because of its, you know, microsomal uh, relationships with, like, fungi and stuff in the soil. Still really cool. And it is still deriving nutrients from, like, dead things. So. Yeah. And something that I absolutely would have put in here if I didn't already know for a fact that you knew this was a thing. Because <laughs> yeah, we yeah. talked about it when it first came out. But, yeah, that was mm-hmm. that was pretty cool, too. So, you know, it just kind of depends on what your definition is. And if you're taking the loose definition of carnivorous plants as animals that are getting their nutrients primarily from sources of animal matter versus, uh, like, soil nutrients, then yeah. Mm -hmm. Animals that get their nutrients from animals. Good job. Did I say that? Yeah. My bad. Plants. (laughs) Too late now. You can't can't fix it. It's fine. No. You just gotta keep going. (laughs) Okay. Well, it's fine. That's it. All right. Well, there you go. Um, good job. Thanks. (laughs) One, one. Mm. since somebody likes to keep score around here. Well, that's the point okay. of playing games. Okay, go. <laughs> that's fair. Okay, would you like the Eurasian Steppe or Australia? Um, I feel like Australia is a wild card and must be saved for last. Let's do the Steppe. Okay, okay. Okay, so the Eurasian Steppe. My... I actually have a category for this one. I guess the other one was bugs. Never mind. I have a category for this one. It is ungulate unknowns. Oh. Alliteration. Oh my. Okay. <laughs> it's all about ungulates. Wait, unknowns oh. though. Are you going to quiz me on things that are actually unknown? Like <laughs> like is is this a thing that is truly unknown? <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out. Oh gosh. Okay. <laughs> okay, are you ready? <laughs> I suppose <laughs> hit me with those unknown facts. <laughs> Okay, uh, 
so just from like information so that everybody's on the same page the eurasian step is absolutely gigantic it's like 5,000 miles wide and 200 to 300 uh, miles tall and just it's just huge so helpful for some of my facts that are coming up to know that okay are you ready okay uh i suppose the saiga antelope has an intense breeding season wherein 80 to 90 percent of all males die i'm sorry what (laughs) (laughs) oh no the saiga antelope has an intense breeding season wherein 80 to 90 percent of all males die all reproductive males. Oh no! Die. I should have researched we'll the saiga specific. antelope. I should have known you would be covering those weirdos. <laughs> I love them. I I spent like an hour just finding like what I wanted to talk about with those guys oh, and like man. if I wanted to make it a lie or a truth. So. Oh man. Gosh, I love them. They're so fun. How crazy okay. would it be to have death by snoo snoo though? <laughs> Not that that's I what's mean, happening here, but... Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Okay. Don't... I can't say anything else. I know! <laughs> Number two. The Mongolian gazelle currently has a population of around one and a half million individuals, maybe more, rivaling even the great migrating herds of Africa. Hmm. Okay. 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 <laughs> Number three, the Shavalsky horse, otherwise known as the pea horse, or the Taki, which I prefer. It is the Mongolian word for the pea horse. Pea horse. <laughs> yes. <laughs> is the last remaining example of a wild horse in the world. Oh, no. Okay. Huh. So, Taki horse is the last wild horse. The Saiga antelope has death by snoo snoo, or the <laughs> Mongolian gazelle is extremely numerous. <laughs> oh no. Okay, more numerous than African herds of. Mm. Not more numerous. It's because, like, um, wildebeests have about 1.5 million individuals. Uh, toms and gazelles uh, and zebras have a little bit less than a million, but they have really large population sizes that make up, you know, all the documentaries of Africa and, like, you know, cool shots. And I'm I'm postulating that the Mongolian gazelle has a similar intense population number. You're po- Wait, is this unknown? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I don't You're know. Postulating. Is it true? Is it fact? I don't know. I don't know. You're is it proposing? true or fact? Okay, you have okay, to okay. tell me. Okay, um, I'm going to walk you through my thought process because I need to walk through it and talking it out loud okay. untangles my thoughts. So here we go. Also, yes. it's a podcast, so I have to do that, I guess. <laughs> Whew, I couldn't just sit here. I could. Anyway, okay. Sorry. Um, starting backwards, mm-hmm. I'm having a hard time thinking of any truly wild horse besides the talkie horse. Yeah. So that seems plausible to me. Um, moving up, I'm realizing I don't know a lot about Mongolia, but I do know that they have a lot of grassland remaining. So maybe they've got 1.4 million Mongolian antelope? I don't know. Gazelles. 
gazelles. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that that dramatically changes things, Nicole. Uh, just kidding. Um, okay. Yeah. Like I can, I can believe that, but I don't mm-hmm. know if that's untrue. Uh, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to say that one I believe could be true. So I'm going to, that's okay. But then okay. Saiga antelope, that's absurd. It sounds like something <laughs> that would happen to them. It sounds like something that would put their species at risk. Yeah. But then I'm like, Rachel is the only reason you want the talkie horse because it was the last one. And like somehow the last one always seems like the most likely answer. Hmm. Um, <laughs> and this is like a test. And would Nicole have the last thing be a lie both times? Uh, or maybe I'm just messing with you. It's like when you give the bottle of poison to the person and you're like, they would never just give me the bottle of poison. They would, you know, blah, 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 blah. And you just like overthink it. <laughs> That sounds like something that a person just realizing their mistake would say. <laughs> um, did I, didn't I just say everything could be true? <laughs> yeah. Okay, hang on. I, I got mean, messed up. That means up I did a good job. <laughs> Thanks. Um, gosh. Uh, okay, in that case, I'm going to say... Hang on, can you tell me the saiga one again? Like, read the sentence again? Uh Uh-huh. The saiga antelope has an intense breeding season wherein 80 to 90% of all males die. Okay. I'm going to say that that one is true, not because of death by snoo-snoo, but because, like, I don't know, their little saiga antelope hormones get them crazy in the brain (laughs) and they, like, run into traffic or something. Like, I can see that happening. Um, Okay, okay. So I'm going to say the lie is the 1.4 million gazelles. Is that your final answer? Yes. (laughs) You're right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Okay. Okay. But there's a twist. Oh, no. (laughs) This is Ungulants Unknown. There is a reason for that title. So the Mongolian gazelle... 100% 100% we're pretty confident that I know that's yeah whatever it's fine that, yeah 100% we're pretty confident <laughs> that in the 1940s they absolutely had numbers in the 1.5 maybe even 2.5 million gazelles just roaming across the steppe so so many gazelles and according to the World Wildlife Fund they claim that 2 million of these gazelles still exist, and it was actually 2 to 3 million that existed in the 1940s. Good grief. So they differed on that 1940s number and also have a way higher number than I found anywhere else for current population sizes. They also mentioned that the IUCN Red List has them listed as threatened, but I went to the IUCN Red List website and it says least concern. So fascinating. Something I, I think feel like World Wildlife Fund needs to get their act together and they need to update their website. So Ooh. I don't think that that is accurate. According to Animal Diversity Web, again, a website that we love and we cherish, they said that only about 300 to 500,000 still exist, which I think is a much more reasonable number considering, you know, climate change, land use conversion, blah, 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 blah. Right. So, okay. But these little guys are so cute. I was reading Give more about them. Give me a picture. Oh, okay. God. 
Um, these guys, let me, let me search it first. I spent, I spent so long trying to find out the truth behind this. And that's why <laughs> this, 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 this part became ungulate unknowns. Cause who knows what the truth is? Oh, I sure no. don't. I can only postulate. <laughs> it's a weird setup for a two truths and a lie. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Don't worry about oh, it. Okay. <clears throat> okay. So that's what Aww. they look like. They, they just kind of look like gazelles. They're like a light cream color with white bellies. The males have horns. The females do not. Um, they have goat faces. They do have goat faces. A lot of animals in the steppe have goat faces, even if they're not goats. It's huh. kind of weird. Um, but these guys, they're very small. They only weigh 25 to 30 kilograms, which is about 55 to 65 pounds. So they're like the size of my dogs. They're not... I mean, they're taller than my dogs, but like they're not very heavy, you know? Okay, yeah. Interesting. These guys, their main predators, <laughs> according again to Animal Diversity Web, are wolves, which checks out, domestic dogs, which checks out considering they're about dog-sized, <laughs> and steppe eagles. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah, so there's just eagles just picking these guys off, like, the rocky crags and just tossing them like our uh, lovely golden eagles would do to goats here in the... Uh, the americas so Man, i mean i believe that Super don't cool. uh, mongolian hunters still yep. use eagles to hunt yes, today yeah. absolutely mm-hmm. so yeah i just love that it's so cool but yeah there's a lot of there hasn't been from what i've seen a whole lot of recent research on these guys which makes me really sad because we we literally don't know how many we have left mm. you know world wildlife fund seems to think there's two million of them still whereas every other website's like eh, maybe not i did find one um semi-recent population density uh project not project survey it doesn't matter survey yes okay. <laughs> one survey that was fairly recent that estimated them at about eight hundred thousand to nine hundred thousand which is pretty good um but you know whatever it doesn't matter well, there's some drastically different numbers though that's kind of amazing that yes. people are having a hard time pinning that down yeah like, how hard like, is it to go count a uh, gazelle <laughs> well when they have a thousand mile range like east to west it's a little difficult <laughs> drones <laughs> okay that's fair okay so uh number i don't remember which which order i said them for originally but number two now is the saiga so that one is true 80 to 90 percent of all males will die during breeding season because the males are constantly fighting over their harems and they don't eat at all during <gasps> breeding season oh no it's a starvation thing yeah. <laughs> oh, God. That's horrible. Yes. So some of them starve. Some of them just, like, kill each other so that they can get, you know, the other one's ladies. Um, but yeah. That... Wild. And there are... I, there's, like, a fancy science word for this kind of behavior. But there's some, like, small mammals that do kind of similar things where they're just, like, so hyped up. And, like, their, their testosterone's going so hard that they just breed to death. And, I mean... Doesn't seem like a great way to keep your numbers up, but I guess it's working for them. I was going to say, it doesn't sound very sustainable. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> but yeah, so, poor Saigas. <laughs> poor Saigas indeed. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yep. And okay. then and then the last yeah, one. Yeah, the talkie horse. Yes. The talkie horse. So this one is also highly disputed, which I did not know before I started uh, researching this. So there was a semi-recent genetic study in 20, 2000, oh my gosh, 2018 that suggests that the talkie horse is actually a subspecies of our domestic horse that we currently have, no. which would suggest that perhaps it was domesticated at one point. And it became however, wild as a secondary... Oh, no! Okay, sorry. Yes, you said however. So it's actually... Yeah, it, so there's a chance that it's just a feral population of horses oh, just like no. our mustangs in the u.s or um i know there's some other examples but mustangs are the first ones that pop into my head so the reason i kind of don't agree with that even though i'm not a i'm not an expert by any means but there's so many sources that insist that the Taki is a wild horse. It's our last wild horse. And a lot of them, it's not just like they haven't been updated since 2018. Like, these are organizations that are dedicated to saving the Taki, and they are still like, no, this is a wild horse. And, you know, the Taki is so important to the people of Mongolia, and they have, you know, history going back with the Taki so far. I just feel like surely they would have some kind of proof of domestication of the Taki if it had happened. Right. But I'm more than willing to admit that I'm wrong on this and that I lied to you and there was two lies here. <gasps> I don't know. Wow. Okay. Well, <laughs> man, what a plot twist. This is this mm -hmm. is fun. That was a fun round, Nicole. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I love how ambiguous the truth is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, like, on a grander scale, I think that's what makes science and especially, like, biological sciences so interesting because half the time things that we think or take for granted as being true could just mm -hmm. get turned over on their heads and it's a constant debate. Yeah, As absolutely. new evidence arises, not a debate against things that are facts, but, you know, when new evidence comes up, the facts yes. or your interpretation of them have to shift. Mm -hmm. But yeah. The talkie. Fascinating. I love them. Thanks, Nicole. You're so welcome. Are you prepared for inverts in the Serengeti? <laughs> oh, gosh. I think so. We'll see. Okay, I'm very sorry. Um, this round is all about invertebrates that are found specifically in the Mara Serengeti ecosystem. Which is a very okay. familiar ecosystem to probably most of the entire world. <laughs> so, uh, rather than talking about multi-mammates, which you would know everything about, fun little rat-like animal, for the record, uh, we're going <laughs> to talk about bugs. And these are, again, longer things, but uh, you're not looking for, like, a tiny little nitpicky piece <laughs> You're looking at, like, yeah. a core component of it is blatantly false. Okay. Okay. All right. We are going to start with butterflies. Fantastic. Yeah. So butterfly diversity in Serengeti depends on the heterogeneity of the ecosystem. And recent research has found that disturbances generally cause butterfly diversity to flourish with both natural and human disturbance, like burning, grazing by wildebeest, 
and human activity seeming to have positive effects. Okay. Seems legit. Next, termites. <laughs> so, of course, termites play a significant role as ecosystem engineers in Serengeti, but they're also significant decomposers. Oh. In fact, termites of some genus are frequent decomposers of mammalian bits, like hooves, some of which not even vultures or hyenas will devour. I don't like that one. (laughs) (laughs) Too bad. It could be true. You never know. It could be. Okay. And finally, we have dung beetles. (laughs) Now, dung beetles, of course, are an important food source for mammals and birds, but they also perform significant functional roles in ecological processes. (laughs) During the wet season, they're responsible for removing and burying almost all dung that occurs in Serengeti. Therefore, they are thought to be important in plant growth, secondary seed dispersal, and parasite control. Did you know that dung beetles also navigate by starlight? That's absurd, and I love it, and I (laughs) feel like I should be surprised, but I'm not, because that's totally a bug thing. That's totally a thing bugs would do. Yeah. Yeah. Like, if you put a giant tent over a dung beetle, like, like a pile of poop, and you have dung beetles coming in, and you put a giant tent over them, they can't find their way because they navigate, like, I guess not even by starlight, but, like, literally by the stars. That's insane. They just go in circles. They don't know where to go. Oh, my gosh. Wait, is it's that so cool? Like, a, like, so if they put, like, a star map on the ceiling, like a mini planetarium? <laughs> yeah. Does, like, changing the star map affect their <gasps> travel? That would be a really cool experiment. I don't know. It would be. People have done that with birds, like indigo buntings. There's some pretty old studies doing that with birds. Why hasn't anybody done this with dung beetles? Nobody cares about bugs. That is not true. We know a lot of people that specifically care (laughs) about carabids. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Um, Okay. So, yeah, there you go. Okay. Um, Yeah, I know that dung beetles play a very important role in poop removal. It's in the name. They're dung beetles. Um wind okay what was the first one there's termites and then butterflies termites and dung beetles okay uh do you want me to summarize them again for you yes so the first one was butterflies in serengeti depend on heterogeneity and research has found that disturbances including like, all types of disturbances mm-hmm. are beneficial to them. Second one was okay. termites that uh, provide decomposition to Serengeti, including, including decomposing hooves. I remember and this things one. That, it's, yes. I, I don't like it. Yes. It's burned into my memory forever, and so then the you don't beetles. have to say it again. <laughs> um, I don't like the termites, so I'm going to go with that one. Also, I just feel like that's so weird that surely somebody would have told me about it by now but maybe not (laughs) okay final answer 
Yes, that is the lie. It is not the lie. <gasps> is it the butterflies? It is the butterflies. Yeah. So so the lie is the butterflies, and that's because even though they do depend on heterogeneity of the ecosystem, um, all types of disturbance have been found to decrease butterfly diversity in Serengeti. Interesting. Yeah, right? So even even grazing? Even grazing by wildebeest burning, which, okay, for the record, the Serengeti is considered a fire climax community. So like other tropical savannas, it's kind of a community at the climax of the succession process, which is maintained specifically by fires. So it's a part of the ecosystem, but all mm-hmm. of those disturbances cause um, butterfly diversity to go down and they're temporarily um or like permanently i mean because i can see them temporarily going down because there's no flowers and there's nothing for them to eat and so they would die Mm -hmm. but uh i'm not a hundred percent sure i'd have to go back and look at the actual (laughs) study materials um but the recommendations for land management that they they Uh uh took from this study was that in order to create a landscape that supports um, butterflies in Serengeti, they had to be really careful with how they use disturbance to manage the land because those disturbances Mm -hmm. are important. But if they are too widespread and uniform across the landscape, Mm -hmm. then, um, you know, no matter where it is, butterfly diversity decreases. And so they just have to take a more moderated approach to managing the landscape to make sure they don't have a negative impact on butterflies. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that means the one you hates is true. (laughs) (laughs) The one you hate is true. Uh, Yes. Yeah. I kind of, I knew I was making a mistake when I went with my gut feeling of how much I hated it. I was like, it's going to be the butterflies. It's going to be true because you hate it. (laughs) That's yes. I couldn't make that up. Yeah, um, the specific <laughs> genus that is known as a frequent decomposer of mammalian hooves is mm-hmm. Odontotermes, and yeah, not no scavenging vertebrates in Serengeti at all use those parts of the remains. So it's just the termites that are breaking down all of those hooves and other unused bits <laughs> to uh, Fantastic. decompose the carcasses. Yep. Fantastic. Nice. <laughs> uh, and yeah, the dung beetles is true, um, which isn't a surprise. I should have found a way to make that spicier, but it's okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they, they do remove and bury almost all dung in Serengeti during the wet season. And that's a lot of dung, because remember, this is an ecosystem that's driven by large mammals, so Mm -hmm. lots of dung. And lots of them. (laughs) And it's pretty, like, it's it's kind of incredible when you think about it. Um, Mm -hmm. And they're thought to be important for bioturbation and all of these other things that go along with burying all that dung, which I think is fascinating. Mm -hmm. I didn't or wouldn't have thought that parasite control, for example, could be something that dung beetles could affect in a positive way. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, very fascinating. Um, And a lot of animals eat them because there's just so many dung beetles. They're one of the more well-studied groups of insects Mm -hmm. in African savannas because there's not a lot of research that's been done on invertebrates in general. 
but everybody's researched dung beetles because they're so important to the functioning of the ecosystem and they're so important to food resources. And you know, if you're a bug, in order to get people to research you, you have to be very important for the bigger, more glamorous animals. Yes. Or have some money associated with you. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Like I said, nobody likes bugs. Nobody likes bugs. Except Emmy and Rachel and Nicole and Evan <laughs> and a lot of other people. Yeah. Shout out to you guys. Keep doing the Mwah. great bug research you've been doing. Yes. And if you're offended that I called them bugs and not beetles, too bad. <laughs> okay. Oh gosh. I'm ready for the last one, Nicole. Okay. We're going to Australia. So, I called this one The Weird, Deadly, and Giant. Are you ready? That sounds exactly like what I'd expect. Okay, let's go. I know. I thought about, <laughs> I was going to do bugs for Australia, and I was like, nah, we got to like lean into the fact that Australia is just a wacky place. So <laughs> I love that we both weird. just went with bugs for all, like we, we went so uh-huh. long on this podcast without repping any invertebrates, any and suddenly we're just laying on all the bug facts. <laughs> yes. Uh, I did think for a while about doing bugs for all three of mine, and I was oh, like, that'd be God. a little much. So I resisted. Anyways, are you ready? Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> My first one is very short. Okay. Because it's a very simple concept. Okay. But is it true? Who knows? Wombats, who are big, so they fit into this category, have backwards-facing pouches. Ooh. Because they are marsupials. They have pouches. Okay. Okay. Gross. Staying down in the dirt. We got the biggest earthworm in the world lives in Australia and can reach two meters, about six and a half feet long. Okay. And they're just too big. Okay. Okay. I like this round so far. (laughs) Number three. Mosquitoes in Australia can also reach giant sizes and can transmit more diseases than any other mosquito populations known. Oh, I hate that. Um, (laughs) That sounds very believable. Oh, no. I think I believe all of these again. Um, Dang it. The earthworm thing, totally believe. But I feel like big earthworm. Wait, how many meters did you say that thing was? Hang on a second. Two meters, six and a half feet. That's bigger than me. That has to be true yes. because, or false because I hate it so much, which is your logic. But I'm going to talk myself through the other ones just for fun. Okay. I think the okay. wombat okay. one is true. I think I've heard that before. Ha ha. Um, but just to make sure, <laughs> was, yeah. backwards would mean like facing the butt. Yes. Okay. So like if, if the joey pops out its head, it's going to be like under the mom's butt. Yeah. Makes, makes it easier for them to like get in there when they're born also don't they have to eat their poop or am i making that up (laughs) uh koalas do that are you sure that wombats don't also do that no okay but it would be a nice easy access to some yummy yummy mom poop if they have to (laughs) okay you're not wrong (laughs) Um, anyway (laughs) 
Um, God, I hate the earthworm one. Okay, uh, the other one was the mosquitoes, which is totally believable. The ticks in Australia can paralyze <laughs> you and make you literally die from not being able to breathe because you're paralyzed if you're a dog or mm-hmm, cat. Mm-hmm. So I hate that. Mosquitoes, fully believe it. It's got to be the earthworms. That is 100% fake, and I despise every inch of it. Okay, that's it. That's so rude. <laughs> And also, you're wrong. Oh, God. <laughs> so the biggest earthworm in the world is the Gypsum, Gypsland Island, giant, oh my gosh, Gypsland giant earthworm, Megascoides australis. And they can reach two, maybe even three meters long. No, 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 no. Do they have tremor mouths? Oh, God. I mean, they have earthworm mouths, but I watched a really, really cool video with David Attenborough. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no. And he was looking for these guys. Does he pick it up like it's a freaking python? No. They're very fragile. You can't pick them up. He even mentions that. He's like, if I were a less considerate soul, I would pick this guy up or stretch him out. But I love him. Like, he was, he's very respectful to this worm. That's, I really appreciated that it. That sounds right. But, oh, man. are you ready for this? No, I'm not at all. I wasn't ready to know this today, Nicole. I didn't, I needed a, a warning for myself on this episode. Gosh. The best part. No, 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 no. Is that when you're just walking around no. in this beautiful, hilly landscape, grass everywhere, you can hear the worms moving underground. They make these squelchy noises as they're moving through their wet burrows. No. No. <laughs> no. Yep. So that, that video has so much squelching in it. And he says the word squelch so many times that I just have to say it a whole bunch too. So that everyone can just suffer with me. I have like unhappy goosebumps. <laughs> um so yeah we'll have we'll have that video on the website don't you worry you don't even have to look it up yourself because oh, no. we don't want you know that search to be in your search history it's okay no don't so, be yeah. a coward search for earthworm squelches <laughs> i'm gonna do it right now oh gosh i mean i can just give you the video link actually yeah let's oh, let's have you react no. to this and in, in in uh <laughs> live Go watch this video. I made uh, the significant other also watch it, and he was very upset. Oh no! And you can skip to like no, it's like two minutes long. No, you're gonna watch the whole thing. Earthworms can live in a moist environment. Because <laughs> <gasps> so I can hear them. <laughs> I don't like that you can hear them. It freaks me out. Oh, no, 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 no. That thing looks like a snot otter. Oh, no, I don't like this. How big around is that thing? Oh, no. You see one later. Oh, God. Oh, no. This is disgusting. I'm really upset that this is a thing that exists. I... I know. We don't... Never mind. We're... Hang on. No. I was like, wait, I don't even know which thing is the lie, but I'm so upset that this is the truth that I don't even care. <laughs> the other ones don't matter. No, they don't. The game oh, no, is over. it's very big. It's, oh, 
That's a poop. <laughs> That's not even the worm. That's its poop. It's not the oh, poop. Oh, it's an egg case. I know. <gasps> you can see the worm inside of it. I know. Oh, I don't like that. Oh, God. <laughs> is that a vein or is it their digestive tract? Oh. Okay, I'm oh, skipping ahead. I just gosh. need to see the worm actually out of its... Oh, it's big. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, it's big as his finger. Oh. Why is this? Is this native to Australia? Yeah, there's it's no native to just Gippsland, Australia. It's in a, it has a very narrow range. Just these beautiful little rolling hills of grass, and then there's this giant worm. Oh my god, I hate it. Okay, oh no, yeah. Nicole, I really don't like this at all. That was fascinating. <laughs> I bet they have like a pretty. Well, are they numerous in their range? nobody knows because they live their entire life underground so they're really really hard to study and you can't like excavate them because they're so big that they just like collapse under their own weight if you try to like pick them up and like if you try to like stretch them out they'll just like pop in half like a worm does you know so Uh, yeah they're hard to study because they're so fragile couldn't they set up like i don't know auditory monitoring programs and like put microphones (laughs) all over the grassland and i mean maybe are they big enough to be caught in, like, seismograph things? Like, I don't know. I am not a worm biologist. <laughs> no, I'm not either, but I don't want to be. <laughs> oh, gosh. Wow, okay. Can you... Okay, you should tell me... What, what What was the lie? Was it the mosquitoes? Yeah, the mosquitoes is the lie. Okay, that was my second guess. There's, yeah. Yeah. There's nothing special about the mosquitoes in Australia. I mean, they do kill you, but so do mosquitoes everywhere. Um, Africa definitely has, like, the most numerous uh, diseases known in their mosquito populations. There's so many. I think I found one website that there was said there was 36 different viruses linked to African mosquitoes. So insane. That's too many diseases. Uh, so, yeah. Okay. Um, so, that's a lie. And then wombats do have backward-facing pouches, and the main reason for that is that they are very terrestrial, they live underground, and if you're dig-dig-dig-dig-digging, you don't want to bop your kid in the head with some dirt, so. (laughs) I tried to make that one a little bit easy. Okay, okay. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Because they also... Yeah, it does. And, like, there's a lot of really weird things about wombats. The backward pouch. They poop in cubes. Mm -hmm. Um, They take four to six days to digest a meal. Like, that's too... They're weird animals. Also, and I almost made this my fact, but it felt... I don't know. It felt weird. Um, (laughs) So... They have rootless teeth, like rodents and rabbits, but it's not just like their front incisors, which in rodents and rabbits are enlarged, Mm -hmm. it's actually all of their teeth are rootless. So they're constantly growing like a rodent. How do they have room for that in their jaw? I don't know. I didn't look it up because I thought I'd be scared. So wombats are wild and they look very cute and I don't want to see their skulls. Uh, I'm going to look it up. I didn't look it up. Okay. (laughs) Let me know what you find, but not really. Also, wombats are not the only marsupial that has a backward pouch. Um, Actually, koalas have a backwards pouch, and so do bilbies. Um, So, and the bilby is also, like, a terrestrial digging mammal, so it makes sense that it has a backwards pouch like the wombat, but, like, koalas live in trees, 
like she's gonna drop her baby. <laughs> yeah. Like you would think. You and would like think. the pouch the pouch in a marsupial is extremely like it has um a lot of muscles, like they can tighten and hold that baby in there. And apparently the koala pouch is more like a sphincter <laughs> at the opening. I don't know. I, that that was a word that I found and I was very uncomfortable with it. So I didn't look into it further. So I don't know if it's like literally like different than other marsupial pouches or if they're just talking about the muscles that like all marsupial pouches have so that they don't drop their kids unless they <laughs> want to because they want to use them as a distraction. I mean, I'm really not sure. That kind of makes sense. But I don't know. We've both stuck our fingers in live opossum pouches before. <laughs> and if she had flexed yes. that thing like a sphincter muscle, we definitely would have noticed. So surely it's not a yes. general marsupial trait. Uh-huh. And it's just like something koalas evolved to stop their babies fall- falling out of trees. Falling out of the trees. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, too many fun wombat facts. I just... That one seemed, like, so simple that I thought maybe you'd get, you know, distracted by its simplicity, the backwards pouch. So, I chose that one. <laughs> Joke's on you, but I fell for it anyway. <laughs> yep, man, that was fun. Yes, it was. <laughs> oh, gosh. What a good idea. And I love Thanks. how different our approaches to writing the <laughs> scenarios was. Like, I wrote yes. scenarios. You wrote uh-huh. facts. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it felt right. I elaborated afterwards, so, you know. You did. <laughs> you did. Uh, well, we hope that you guys liked this too. If you like this style of podcast where it's a little bit less formal and we're just kind of joking around, or if you just literally want to see us do two, two truths and a lie again, like, we are totally down, so please let us know. And thank you so much for listening to The Best Biome. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend, you know, leave us a little uh, donation on the website, you know, or a review on Podcaster. Podcaster? Nope. What is wrong with us? Podchaser (laughs) or Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Give us a follow on Facebook and Twitter. Send us some fan mail, all that good stuff. And we will see you next week. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) Stop with your buys. No, I can't.